Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you for working in our midst, for using us, for uh, keeping us in the ways that we go, and Lord, keeping us safe during the work and bringing people in and new people in there at Community Baptist Church. We thank you for using John Rivera to send two visitors by, and Lord, we just thank you for all that you do, the answered prayer, your goodness, your grace. We thank you that your word never changes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Go ye kids. We'll have you to be dismissed at this time. Okay. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to be leafing through our Bibles again. We're still going through the subject of prophecy. And, and tonight we're going to be uh, dealing mostly with prophecies concerning uh, the Messiah, Jesus' first coming, and um, we have several different types uh, of prophecies in the Bible concerning Jesus. Uh, one preacher said that Jesus, from his birth to the resurrection, fulfilled over 600 prophecies in the Scripture. Uh, I have not been able to find or verify that, um, and... Uh, we're certainly not going to be able to cover 600 references in Scripture tonight, but we are going to take a sampling of the different kinds of prophecies about the Messiah. The first uh, ones that we're going to do are uh, what we would call known uh, prophecies. These are prophecies that everybody knew about. It was not a mystery. They were just waiting uh, their fulfillment. The example of that that we will use is Matthew chapter 2. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, uh, and uh, let's just set the context. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod king, and these wise men came from the east, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Verse 2, For we have seen his star in the east and are come to Worship Him. Now, uh, number one, this should have set off many, many uh, warning lights in the Jewish world. But it didn't because it says, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. But not for the right reasons. Uh, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. What's the second commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Now, what were these wise men coming to do? They were coming to worship a person. Uh, wait a minute, that's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? Well, this person, yes. This is the only person in all of history we worship because this is Jesus God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And we'll be talking more about that during uh, the Christmas season. But Herod was troubled because he was the king of the Jews. And he didn't want anybody messing things up. And by the way, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, uh, the lawyers, uh, they had finally come through a very uh, dark period of history here in what we call the intertestamental period. It was about 400 years. 
uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the uh, Greek ruler, had desecrated the temple, had taken pig's blood into the temple of God and poured it on the golden altar there. The Roman centurion who had defeated Antiochus' armies in uh, years later and came in and conquered the land of Israel, had rode his horse up the temple steps and into the holy place. Uh, because here, here is a classic misunderstanding of cultures. You see, the Romans believed that if you were going to conquer a people, you conquered their God. And the way you did that was you took the uh, Roman ensign, the eagle, and the crest of your troop, and you went into the most sacred place of their temple, and you put it there. And, of course, Jerusalem went in complete riot stage there, and the uh, Roman centurion was actually censored and made to pull his standard back, and uh, the temple area was made secure again, Uh But all of those things, and see, Herod was, I don't know what we would call him today, an opportunist. He was just one of those people that was standing in the wings, trying to be somebody very important. And uh, he had an opportunity. Somehow he had managed to speak to the ruling family, the family of the high priest. They're called the Hasmoneans. And uh, uh, Herod, who was not even a Jew, married into the family of the high priest. And then through his connivings and pulling strings at Rome, uh, (coughs) was put in as the king of the Jewish people. And his first main task was building what is known historically as Herod's temple. The temple that Zerubbabel... And Shethiel had built the one that Haggai prophesied about and Zechariah. Uh, that temple was standing. And then they took Herod's temple and built it, just literally absorbed the second temple into Herod's temple. And in Jewish history, Herod's temple is the second temple. Uh, Zerubbabel's was of such architectural and... Uh, Uh, decorative uh, insignificance that it was not even given a special place. I mean, it's mentioned, but it's Herod's temple that everybody was excited about. That's the one they said, we've been building it for 37 years and you're going to rebuild it in three days. In fact, uh, if we understand history correctly, they did not finish building the temple. They started 37 years before Christ, and we're building the temple all the way to 67 A.D. Almost a hundred years, actually over a hundred years. That'd be 103 years, because you don't count zero in the middle. Uh, only three years before the temple was destroyed was it completed. And the priests, they... They were liking Herod because he was doing all these great things and lifting up their uh, credibility and, and pomp and circumstance and bringing in all of this revenue to build the temple there. And everything was going good. They were upset because 
the idea of a Messiah was going to mess things up politically, economically. In fact, it was Caiaphas that said, if we let this man alone, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem because of Jesus. That wasn't true. They destroyed Jerusalem because of Caiaphas' grandson or whoever was the high priest in 70 A.D., because he wouldn't listen to the Roman emissaries. So we have this guy named Herod, who is a very wicked, evil man. Herod the Great is what his historical title is. Now look at verse 4. We're just setting context here. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now, here is wicked King Herod. He calls in the chief priests, he calls in the scribes, that would be the lawyers, the ones that copied down the scriptures, the ones that wrote the commentaries and argued about things. He brought in all these people into his palace. We have the wise men contingency here from the east, and people uh, try to figure out where these guys were. It wasn't one from Africa and one from China and one from uh, India or whatever. Uh, more than likely, they were from Persia the land where Daniel was held captive. That would be the simplest understanding. They came from this area. They had seen the uh, signs in the heavens and so, and possibly even had one of Daniel's scrolls and may have understood that there were some things going on. And they come to Jerusalem. And Herod says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they come back with an answer. They come back with the right answer, by the way. Uh, they, they knew their Bible. This was a prophecy that was not hidden in mystery. Everybody knew. And so let's go to the book of Micah, if we would. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah. Jonah, Micah, sorry. Uh, so we go to Micah chapter 5, and let's just start reading in verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths have been from old, from everlasting. Well, we read the words there, and obviously that could not be talking about any ordinary man, whose goings forth have been old, from everlasting. This could only reference God. And I want you to get this here. The wise men came to worship Him. They recognize that he, the, the, the uh, subject of this prophecy is God. To that understanding, the prophecy of Micah is fulfilled and agrees 100%. And so they come back. Some other very well-known prophecies. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You would think that 
knowing these prophecies as the Jewish people did, that when Jesus made these claims to be the Messiah, to be God in the flesh, that they would have understood the fulfillment of prophecy. But in the sermon this morning, there was nothing magnificent about Jesus' physical appearance. There was nothing that compelled them or uh, rose up within them a desire to believe in him. Even the disciples at time manifest the most atrocious examples of faith, did they not? Uh, when they woke Jesus up in the back of the boat saying, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he stood up and said, Peace be still, and it was. And now they were more afraid than when they were afraid of dying just a few minutes ago because of the power that Jesus uh, uh, showed them in calming the tempest. Now, you can go out and yell at the wind all you want, but it's not going to do much good now, is it? But when Jesus just said, peace be still, the wind stopped. And it takes hours to churn up an inland lake like the Sea of Galilee as the winds begin moving contrary across it and turning and rocking that water back and forth until it breaks up into waves and uh, our great lakes, which are much larger, of course, here in the United States, uh, Lake Erie is notorious. In fact, they had a, a, a large iron ore ship back in the uh, 40s or 50s, the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, and they said it was on the radar screen. The captain allowed the, the ship to drift into shallow water. And the best they understand is one wave picked up one end of the boat, and another wave held the other, and the middle of that boat was not supported by the water. And the weight of the ship snapped that thing in two, and it disappeared off the radar that quick. And they found it at the bottom of Lake Erie just recently. Uh, it's, those are amazing stories, and yet all Jesus did was say, Peace be still. How about Isaiah chapter 7? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. And if you turn just, if you're still there um, in, in the book of Matthew or very close, go back to Matthew chapter 1. And it tells us that... Uh, Verse 21, uh, uh, Joseph is concerned and trying to figure out what is going on. And the Lord appears to him in a dream and tells him to fear not to take Mary to be his wife. And it says here in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And what they're quoting is Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. These are known scriptures. All you have to do is study your Bible and you can know what these passages, even though they're prophetic, what they're talking about. 
Uh, just like in the book of Revelation, where we get off subject here, it talks about the millennial kingdom. Uh, we can know that that hasn't happened yet. There's never been a thousand years where Jesus ruled and reigned, and the other events that are described there have yet to happen. So we can trust God's Word that this is prophesying about something that's going to happen in the future. Amen? But let's look at some prophecies that aren't quite so easily discerned. Turn with me to Matthew 2 and verse 15. And uh, put your finger there. Now let's go back to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, chapter 11. Hosea, chapter 11. Now let's read the prophecy first, and then we'll read the fulfillment. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And as they called them, so they went from them, and they sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by the arms, but they knew not that I healed them. Now, this is part of Hosea's prophecy. As we read this, it almost it sounds just like it's Israel's history being related. And it is. It's giving the history of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, of uh, the problems with Balaam, of, of the different tribes of Israel refusing to follow God during the time of the judges. And it goes on through that history. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. If your finger's still there, read verse 15. It says, The wise men departed in verse 13. Joseph had a dream to go to Egypt. And he arose in verse 14. He took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. Verse 15, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, we have this prophecy here. And I, I would challenge you that it would be very difficult for us to know that Hosea chapter 11 was talking about the flight to Egypt that is, as it is so often called, or fleeing to Egypt uh, in as Jesus was a baby. And, and it even gets more complex. Go down two more verses here and we'll do this one backwards. It says in verse 17, uh, let's just read the whole thing, 16, here we go. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and went forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Now turn back with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, we're just going to start reading in verse 11. 
It says, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their souls shall be as a watered garden. They shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahel weeping for her children, Refuse to be comforted for her children, because they are not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes for tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. Now, we read Jeremiah's prophecy, and I want to challenge you. I I do not believe that there is any honest way that you would know that this passage is talking about the murder of the children by Herod in the city of Bethlehem. How do we know that? Because Matthew, writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, picks this verse out and tells us that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And someone might say... Uh, well, that's a little confusing to me. Uh, couldn't uh, Matthew just have been familiar with this passage and tried to make this fit? Well, we go back and we start at the beginning with the Bible. We believe it is God's Word. Each word is given to us. Therefore, we trust the message of the Bible. And that God put this prophecy in there in a way that we could not find it without Him telling us is simply this. God wants us to understand prophecy. But He's not going to make it plain to those who do not read and study and compare the Scriptures. And God does put some things in there that are just simply puzzling. This is one of them. You know why? Because He wants to teach us to trust His Word. That's it. This passage has a secondary or another meaning to it. It, It's part of a reference here to the return of Israel after the captivity in Babylon. And yet, here, we have Matthew telling us that part of this passage has a double fulfillment in that it is talking about the murder of the babies in Bethlehem at the hand of Herod seeking to destroy the Messiah. Uh, I want to challenge you that not all prophecy is clear. Uh, in fact, the simplest way to understand prophecy is once it's fulfilled. Uh, when the Bible says, thus it was done that it might be fulfilled, that was written by the prophets. Or, uh, and, and that phrase is found in the book of Matthew more than once. And uh, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 4. And this is the second one talking about the prophecy of Jesus, uh, the ministry of Jesus. 
Uh, we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, verse 13, Matthew chapter 4. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, if you would. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to start one, at verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously affect her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor is in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is confused, noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And we've already read this verse. We know when we get to verse 6, this is a messianic prophecy. As we read in the book of Matthew, the rest of this prophecy was fulfilled in the fact that Jesus centered his earthly ministry in that very area that Isaiah prophesied about. And the Bible tells us. This is the best way to understand prophecy when the Bible said, this was done that it might be fulfilled, and then it gives us the prophet. Now, there are a few that are in the Bible that are neither extremely plain, but we can figure this thing out because of different references in the Scripture and things that were... This morning, we went through Isaiah chapter 53. How could that not be talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, you have to change the words. And I'm not going to re-preach this morning's sermon, all right? I'll give you a break. Uh, but the simple truth is... That passage is talking about the finished work of Christ. It fits the New Testament scriptures, promises, work of Christ, the teaching of Christ. One of the golden rules of understanding scripture is that my understanding of passage A does not contradict a simple understanding of any other passage. People often hold up their Bible and say, it's full of conflicts. Well, if you got an NIV or one of those newfangled ones, you're actually not too far off the point. The translation 
is based upon such faulty manuscripts that the the truth that is in there is uh, actually messed up in in many places. According to the NIV, Jesus is a sinner because the NIV says, "Whosoever is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment." Uh, in your King James Bible, there's a little phrase in there. It says, "Whosoever is angry with his brother." without a cause, is in danger of the judgment. Uh, Jesus did get angry, my friends. In fact, he got violently angry when he cast the money changers out of the temple. This was not uh, something pleasant to behold, but was Jesus within his rights as the Son of God to do that? Absolutely. That was the temple that was built to worship him, and they had made it a money-making proposition for the Pharisees and the sellers of of the sacrifice is not a place to worship God. Let's turn to one more, and then we'll be done tonight. Uh, Again, this is rather obvious passage. This is uh, the uh, Jewish people today do not recognize this as one, but anyone that knows their Bible at all When you go to Psalm 22, and we've spent some time on this in the past, so we're not going to go into detail tonight. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those are the words of Jesus from the cross. Um, Verse 2 says, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Um... Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. I mean, the, the Jewish people, these words are quoted in the book of Matthew as being spoken by the enemies of Jesus on the cross. Uh... Uh, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Jesus said, I thirst. And then he said, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit, after he had made the proclamation that it was finished. And, and so, uh, one of the things that I would hope and pray that you would do, as you are reading your Bible, that you would ask the Holy Spirit to make you sensitive to these passages and to these connections. And when you're reading in the New Testament and you come across that it might be fulfilled, which was uh, prophesied or, or something along those lines, take a moment, if, if at all possible, and go back and look that up and compare the Scriptures with the Scriptures. This is what God wants us to do. Because we will see the patterns of how prophecies are fulfilled. One of the great questions of our modern day. Who are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation? And uh, people say they're Moses and Elijah. And other people say uh, it's Enoch and Elijah. And and, uh, I've, I've heard preachers preach sermons and argue about the identity of the two witnesses. Well, let me ask you a question. Who was John the Baptist? 
He was John, the son of Zechariah, the priest, was he not? And yet, what did Jesus tell the disciples? If you'll believe it, this is Isaiah, I mean, Elijah, which came for you. That John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Malachi. That he would send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He would send Elijah. Now, was John the Baptist Elijah? No, he wasn't. Different person. He was a unique individual person born in time to the family of the priest of Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth. But he was a fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Malachi. And let's just uh, look at that. The last verses of your Old Testament. Verse 5 of chapter 4 of the book of Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So, I want you to know that God has patterns of scriptural fulfillment. And they don't always just look the way that we might think they should look. But, we can trust God to know when His prophecies have been fulfilled or not. Amen? And so, stop worrying about who these two witnesses are. If if we are correct and the Lord is the Lord's coming is eminent at any moment it could come, the rapture of the church, guess what? Those two witnesses are alive here on this earth today. That's pretty cool to think about, isn't it? Well, it also means that the Antichrist is alive and active in this world today. And we do not know who they are. They are the men that God has Uh, ordained that would fulfill these things. Our God does not choose people to go to heaven and hell, but He is in His infinite wisdom knowledgeable enough to know who will volunteer for the job. That's where Judas comes in, the son of perdition. And you say Judas had a choice? Yes, he had a choice. But God knew enough about Judas' life before he was born To know that he would be the guy that would fit the bill for the betrayer of Jesus Christ. What a terrible place to be. And and people say, well, that, yeah, yeah, I don't under, listen, let's stop trying to explain away God and just believe in the fulfillment of his prophecies. Amen? And so, at, at this point, we've taken a sample of the different kinds of prophecies. We've, uh, looked through uh, the the office of a prophet and the uh, uh, the things that were there and so uh, after our missions conference open uh, is over what we're going to start working on on Sunday night is prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled and uh, we'll have a couple of weeks there and we'll be right into the Christmas season before long and so I hope and pray that uh, you will be able to. Uh, Use this material as you read and study your Bible on your own. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would give us grace and wisdom. Help us to retain uh, an understanding of these things. And Lord, to be able to, in our daily Bible reading, be sensitized to prophecies and fulfillment of prophecies. And Lord, that you would help us to make the connections that should be made that we may be able handlers of your word. 
We ask you to work in our hearts and lives. In your name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll give you just a moment to pray on your own. If you would like to come up and pray at the altar, you may. Uh, Just a moment and then we'll get into our regular prayer time.